the global food system is as great a threat to Earth systems as fossil fuels are, if not more, because it hits Earth systems at every single level. It's by far the greatest cause of deforestation, of habitat destruction, of wildlife loss, of species extinction, of soil degradation, of fresh water use, and it's among the greatest causes of climate breakdown, river pollution, air pollution. Above all, and perhaps most importantly, it's by far the greatest cause of land use, and land use should be right at the top of our list of environmental concerns, but it's massively neglected alongside so many other of the impacts of the food system. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Howdy, friends. Today's episode is with author, columnist, and environmental activist, George Monbiot. If not for his regular columns for The Guardian, you may be familiar with his viral videos, most notably, How Wolves Change Rivers, which has been viewed now over 44 million times on YouTube, or Natural Climate Solutions, which he co-hosted with Greta Thunberg. Most recently, in 2022, he published his latest book, Regenesis, a look into what our current food system is doing to the environment and the solutions that can help transform this system and create a better world. This being the topic of today's conversation. While we probably only got to about 10% of the things I had planned to talk about, leaving room, I hope, for a much longer and more detailed conversation in the near future, I still think there's plenty of important takeaways. With that, here's my conversation with George Monbiot. I hope you enjoy it. If you do and can spare a minute, please leave a review on Apple or Spotify. This helps the show grow which means we can continue to attract the brightest and most trustworthy people in science. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, 
there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. In fact, I can hold it up here and you can see I've taken the beautiful cover off of it. And I did that because I read most of this on the beach. I think that's probably why in Australia, a lot of the books are often uh, soft cover, maybe for that reason, because the sand gets stuck uh, <laughs> in the cover. But I took it off nonetheless and thoroughly enjoyed reading it. You're a, a masterful writer. And you know, over the, the, the past decade or so, I've been really drawn to your work, um, both for your skill in writing, but also your passion for all things environment and you know i i think you just really delivered with this book it's a beautiful blend of science there's uh there's myth busting in there there's despair there's there's hope ultimately um which was a, a great way to to finish i i myself am deeply passionate about the environment and i often find myself leaving conversations and feeling quite cynical so i was pleased to to kind of put the book down and and feel optimistic it's been out now for over half a year what's the feedback been like and is the world ready to embrace the solutions that you put forward thanks very much simon and thank you for your kind words um yeah so it's it's been certainly a a big response to it um with uh there's been a lot of support but also a lot of pushback uh, it's um, certainly stirred things up, which I guess is the best I can hope for. You know, I never expect it, uh, to be met with universal acclaim for anything I'm saying because I'm always tackling issues that are hard to talk about and are tough to hear and and raising questions which a lot of people would much rather not address. And I, I totally understand that. Um, you know, we have a limited capacity for absorbing complex issues and, and dealing with them. And this is one of the great constraints on our ability to deal with our crises. Hmm. It's just, you know, a lot of people don't want to hear bad news. A lot of people don't want to make any changes required to prevent that bad news from materializing. And so we find ourselves constantly outpaced by events and continually um, being sort of shocked by the, the way things unfold because we haven't prepared for them. And I guess what I've tried to do all my life is to say, here's what we need to do to prepare. Here's what we need to do to get ahead of events and, and prevent these crises from overtaking us. 
you say all my life. Why climb it? Where 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 does this passion for you come from? This you know you dedicated your entire life to climate, to the climate movement. I think most of us value nature, but you really value nature. Why? Well, well in, in fairness, Simon, it's not just climate; it's Earth systems. It's it's the um, it, entire. Um, life support system on which we we depend that obsesses me and there is a danger sometimes where we sort of boil that down to climate but actually um, the atmosphere is one of um, a number of crucial interlocking systems you know all the ecosystems including the soil the oceans um, the global circulation system the cryosphere the world's ice and snow you know, nature recognizes no boundaries here. You know, we, we put things into boxes to make their study easier. And we say, right, I'm studying climate or I'm studying soil or I'm studying forests. But actually, they are all very closely and heavily interconnected. And those interconnections are themselves a source of fascination for me. But it began with my love of wildlife and, um, and that love was something well, inexplicable to me. It just happened when I was a very, very small child. Um, it became all consuming. And as I became older, I began to understand what was happening to the wildlife I loved, but also the extraordinary degree to which it depended on us and on Earth systems for its survival, on, on you know, whether or not we, um, we, we treat it with respect, but also to which we and earth systems depend on wildlife um, again we put biodiversity in a box and treat it as some sort of ornament some something that's nice to have but isn't very important to us but it turns out that um, the ability of of ecosystems to sustain themselves is dependent on um, the diversity of life within them and and world systems in turn are dependent on the ability of ecosystems to sustain themselves. So we can't separate any of these things out. As the great conservationist John Muir remarked, when you try to pull out anything by itself, you find it hooked to everything in the universe. And when we consider these ecosystems and the planetary boundaries, so we move kind of beyond just quote-unquote climate change, or I think as you put it, climate breakdown, but we move beyond this this discussion, which sometimes can be distilled down to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, and that takes up all of the airtime. And I think that's kind of what you're, you, you just alluded to there. Um, if, we, if we think about all of the planetary boundaries and we think more holistically about nature, the natural world, why is food so important why have you focused on food and not fossil fuels well part of the reason for my focus on food is that it's massively neglected by comparison to our developing interest in fossil fuels i mean we don't pay nearly enough attention to fossil fuels but we pay even less to food and farming and yet the global food system is as great a threat to earth systems as fossil fuels are if not more because it hits Earth systems at every single level. It's um, by far the greatest cause of deforestation, of habitat destruction, of wildlife loss, of species extinction, 
of soil degradation, of freshwater use, and it's among the greatest causes of climate breakdown, river pollution, air pollution. Above all, and perhaps most importantly, it's by far the greatest cause of land use, and land use should be right at the top of our list of environmental concerns, but it's massively neglected alongside so many other of the impacts of the food system. Yeah, I think we put a pin in land use and we make sure we come come back to that. <laughs> yes. That seems to be yeah. recurring the book and important to some of the solutions that you're putting forward. You mentioned soil degradation and you begin the book with your fascination with soil. What is it about soil and life within soil that fascinates you and should fascinate all of us? Well, we were talking about neglecting certain subjects and while perhaps the most neglected of all important subjects is soil. It's the ecosystem from which we receive 99% of our calories. It sustains all terrestrial life on Earth. And yet we are almost entirely ignorant of it. It's pretty well a black box to us. And that's one of the reasons why we treat it so badly. We treat it like dirt. Um, and now I mention soil and ecosystem in the same breath, and even that is probably a surprise to some people. People just think of soil as stuff, but actually it's one of the most diverse and abundant ecosystems on earth. And it's more than that. It's a biological structure, a bit like a coral reef. The soil would not be there at all if it weren't for the creatures that live in it. Those, it's the organisms in the soil which make the soil. They actually build soil. So starting at the, the smallest level with bacteria, they build these tiny little capsules in which they live by sticking together mineral particles with cement that they make out of the carbon in the soil. And most soil carbon is used to make cement by the creatures that live in the soil. And um, those capsules have remarkable properties. And even when you air dry soil, it's 98% humidity inside those capsules. And then out of those tiny little aggregates, as we call them, made by bacteria, you have the little scuttling creatures, generally microscopic scuttling creatures in the soil that we call microarthropods, which build slightly bigger capsules in which they live and then you have the giants of the soil, like ants and worms, which build bigger aggregates still out of that. And soil is fractally scaled, which means that it has the same structure at any level of magnification. It's a remarkable property, which explains its amazing resilience. That's why in nature, it doesn't just get washed off the land by the first rain that comes along or blown off by the first wind that comes along which it would if it were just stuff, as we assume it to be. Um, but it also has properties that we just don't understand at all yet. There was a paper published in 2020 which said, we think we might know what soil is. And subsequently, I've spoken to the authors who say, well, actually, in light of our, our new research, we still don't know what soil is. Mm. It's got, it behaves in these really, really weird ways that other ecosystems don't behave in. Um, uh, one of them, for instance, is that if you reduce the carbon content of the soil, the entire microbial genome shrinks simultaneously. So all the microbes in the soil reduce the length of the DNA 
in their genome. We don't know how that's happening, why that's happening, what's driving that process. And weirdly, at the same time as the DNA is shrinking, the number of RNA operons rises, suggesting a metabolic response. Um, something very, very weird and interesting is going on there. There's a sort of a simultaneous collective response to environmental stress, almost as if it's coordinated across the entire soil, but we don't know how, we, we don't know what the mechanism is. And crucial, huge questions like this, because there's been so little interest in soil and so little money put into discovering what's going on, They've scarcely even been broached. Here we are putting billions of dollars into the Mars rover program to find out something about the surface of that planet. And yet we know scarcely anything about the surface of our own planet. So how has, has modern agriculture affected this soil biology? Do we understand that? If we were to say, compare uh, soil in a farming practice that is more of a conventional one where there are sort of synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, maybe animal manure, etc., versus a farming system that does none of that or, or less of that, could you could you tangibly notice a difference in the in the soil biology or quality? Yeah. I mean if we were to compare soil in, in a natural ecosystem, like like in a forest or a savanna or parts of the Australian outback which have never been farmed, you would find a, a completely different situation pertaining to places in soils which have been hit by years of farming by either arable agriculture or by, um, by, by stock keeping. You, you'll very often find radical changes to that soil. And this is because we've been treating soil as if it were just stuff. We haven't been recognizing it as a biological system so we haven't been protecting it as a biological system should be protected. Um, so just to spool back a bit, because you know we're beginning to understand now that soil biology is even more important than soil chemistry when it comes to being able to sustain um, the growth of crops or indeed the growth of any ecosystem on that soil. And the reason for that is this it is this remarkable symbiotic relationship between plants and the microbes in the soil, particularly bacteria and fungi. And there's this, I guess the story starts with this remarkable finding that plants can talk. They, they talk using a, a chemical language that's highly sophisticated. In fact, they um, tune it so that they can speak out of all the many hundreds of thousands of species of bacteria um, in particular in the soil, they can speak to one species or even to one genotype within the species. And, and they do so by producing these incredibly complex chemicals. Um, almost certainly they're using grammar, though we haven't been able to detect that yet. But because they're producing several chemicals at once, it's likely that they're using one chemical to mediate the message from another chemical, which is grammar, um, in order to refine and refine that, that language that they're using and the messages they're sending. So what happens is that when a, a plant's root hair breaks into a little clump of soil um, for the first time, um, that clump of soil will be full of dormant bacteria, bacteria which are there, but 
not doing anything at all. They're basically asleep. They're not reproducing. They're not feeding. And as the plant comes into the lump of soil, the root comes into the lump of soil, it'll send out one of these tremendously complex signals aimed at just one species of bacteria within the huge number that might be living in that cluster. And then um, and that bacterium will wake up and then the plant floods it with sugar. And um, of, of all the sugars that plants make through photosynthesis, between about 10 and 40% of them are poured into the soil to feed the microbes around the roots. And, and so the bacteria which have woken up, they feed on that sugar, they reproduce very rapidly, and they create a dense ring of, of microbes surrounding that root hair. And we call that, that ring the rhizosphere. Um, and it's, uh, it includes some of the densest bacterial communities on Earth. And they do several things for the plant. In return for the sugars the plant gives them, they extract um, minerals from the soil. The plants have great difficulty getting minerals by themselves, and they need bacteria or fungi to break the mineral bonds and to get into the tiny crevices and to get the minerals for them. And so the bacteria deliver minerals. They also fight off pathogens. So any dangerous microbes which might want to attack the plant um, will be, um, the, the, the root hair will be defended against those by this sort of ring of steel created by, by the bacteria that surround it. And they fire up the plant's immune system. So even if the plant's being attacked above ground by aphids or caterpillars, for instance, it'll ping a signal down through the root hair to the bacteria surrounding it. The bacteria then modify that signal and bounce it back into the plant and that fires up the immune system. Mm. It's a very cumbersome relationship, but that's because of the evolutionary pathway. You know, you mm. can't cut corners across that pathway. Now, when you think of those three elements, delivering minerals in exchange for sugars, defending um, the, the organ, the root, against pathogens, and firing up the immune system, there's something might be just, a bell might be ringing at the back of your mind thinking, I've heard of all that before. This, this is something very similar to another story. And then it hits you. Oh, yes, it's the human gut. All those things are happening in the human gut. Um, you have these incredibly dense bacterial communities. They swap sugars for minerals. They defend you against infection, um, fighting off pathogens in the gut, which might invade the gut wall. And they fire up your immune system. And what you realize is that the rhizosphere, this little zone of soil surrounding the root, is a plant's external gut. And this becomes an even more powerful comparison when you realize that of the thousand or so phyla major groups of bacteria, there are four which dominate in the human gut. And there are four which dominate in the rhizosphere. And they're the same four. Hmm. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Insight Tracker, 
a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. I had the the Sonnenbergs on. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. They're they're microbiologists from Stanford University and they specialize in the microbiome, the human microbiome. And something we spoke about was they'd spent a lot of time with the Hatza. And they were looking at the differences in the human microbiome between hunter-gatherers and and people living in cities, you know, adopting a more modern lifestyle. And one of the things that they've observed is that there is a loss of microbial diversity in the human gut as humans adopt a more modern sort of sterile, uh, low fiber, more ultra processed diet lifestyle. And there's this association between this loss of bacterial diversity in the gut and increases in chronic disease. So Mm. where I'm kind of going with this is, uh, over the last 100, 200 years, the modern sort of agriculture system was set up. Um, and as I understand it, a lot of that was an attempt to produce more calories and reduce the starvation. Um, and there, there is a, a success story, I guess, to be told there in terms of, of doing that and, and helping uh, reduce the risk of, of nutrient deficiency related diseases. Um, but at the same time, 
the food quality changed and um, we inadvertently created another problem, which is this chronic disease sort of epidemic that we're seeing now. Is it a similar story in within the soil? Have ha, have these farming practices over time? Are we are we are we? Is there a future that you see where we essentially have loss of bacterial diversity in the soil and a sort of chronic disease state within this ecosystem? Well, it, it's, a, it's a very good analogy and I think a very strong one. And it's not just about the future. We're seeing it happening right now. This is exactly what's going on in many soils. In in the human gut, we call it dysbiosis, right? That, that's, that's a term when your gut community is completely out of whack. And I think that's a very useful term and we should be using it about other ecosystems, including the soil, because that's exactly what's going on. We're seeing... Um, profound alterations in the soil community caused by farming. We're seeing a great thinning out of diversity and abundance um, right across all levels of all organisms in, in the soil, caused by a great combination of things, by, by ploughing, which does enormous damage to soil structure, also by pesticides, which rip through soil food webs. You know, we, we talk a lot about the impact on bees and insects that we can see, but actually, and the microscopic creatures in the soil, these impacts can be just as severe and even more wide ranging in terms of ecological damage. And we're also seeing the gross structure of the soil breaking down and degrading. Now, people can carry on hitting and hitting the soil and remaining quite complacent about it because to begin with, you don't necessarily see any major change. You can continu continue to grow crops in that soil and there might be a sort of small decline of e and yields, but it doesn't look as if anything very major is going on. You, you carry on slapping on the fertilizer, the crops keep growing, you keep harvesting them, you think that can go on forever. But soil is a complex system and in common with all complex systems, it has critical thresholds, tipping points. If you pass those thresholds, it doesn't just decline linearly and gradually, it suddenly collapses. And that sudden collapse is what we call a dust bowl. And we've seen that many times in world history. We have the most famous example, which is the Great Dust Bowl in the US, but that's just one of many examples. And it's famous because it happened in the US. And we see an, an ever increasing likelihood of dust bowls now in some of the world's crucial food baskets. Um, and what you see is just the same as in any other complex system, that the eventual tipping point can be caused by a relatively minor knock. You know, once you've undermined the resilience of the system, when it's been degraded and degraded and degraded until it becomes frailer and frailer and frailer, then it's the butterfly's wing over the Atlantic, which causes a hurricane, you know, it's that small tap can just completely destroy it. And that often takes the form of a drought. And when a big drought hits a degraded soil, the erosion rate can rise 6,000-fold, more or less overnight. And that, that is just cliff edge. That is total collapse. And then the entire soil can just disappear from the land. It can be washed off by rain. It can be blown away by wind and you've just got nothing left. You're down to subsoil, and then land has got no productive potential at all. You can't grow anything there. 
And, and that is one of several very major environmental threats now converging on the food system, that as we're pushing these systems harder and harder and harder, hammering different ecosystems with a whole series of, of really disastrous practices, we'll see more and more of them collapse. And a lot of that will then hit the global food system and nothing hits it harder than the collapse of soil. So what are the big food companies thinking about this? Because surely they have environmental scientists who are sounding the alarm and saying, guys, we, we can't be so short-sighted here. We, we may have decent enough yields now, but we're going to reach a point where that's not the case. It's, it's going to begin to be too expensive um, to, to run this business based on what we can produce from the land that's, that's completely degraded. Are they speaking about it? Is there talk from the big sort of food companies that control a lot of the food supply about transitioning and moving to other methods that do consider soil biology? <laughs> Please forgive my cynical laughter. Um, so it's a bit like the oil companies. You say, oh, yeah, you know, back in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, yeah, okay, climate, climate breakdown is real. Global temperatures are rising. Sea levels are going to rise as a result. So we better raise the height of our oil platforms. it's like it's not how does this affect the world how does this affect our profits Mm -hmm. and the trouble is that corporate profits are always short term it's always a question of what dividend can we pay our shareholders including ourselves um, this year Um, what are our quarterly results going to look like what bonuses am i going to get as uh, in that reflects those quarterly results and so the idea of looking to the long term just doesn't occur, um, you know, unless there's some very immediate threat to the corporate bottom line. But the thing is that global food corporations, by their very nature, they span the world. And so if there's a disaster in one place, well, they just obtain supplies from another place. And, and the trouble is now that we like to see much more synchronization of disaster, partly because of the global nature of the gathering collapse of earth systems, but also because we're seeing the creation of the global standard farm. In other words, farming everywhere using the same techniques, the same seeds, the same farm chemicals, the same farm machinery supplied by the same corporations. So failure in one place is likely to be echoed by failure in many other places. But, you know, corporations are just the wrong vehicle for looking to that long-term threat and addressing it. They, they have no interest in doing so. It's all about short-term returns. Mm. So profitability then is what's holding people to the current system, it sounds like, which would be driven by higher yield or less input costs. I realize what you're saying is that's not sustainable into the future. But so if I'm a CEO of one of these companies, I'm kind of looking at option A, which is what we're exist, what we're doing now. And option B, is it that I'm going to have less yield? I'm going to have more running costs. Why? Why would a, a system like Tolly's that you speak about in the book? Why would transitioning to something like that 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 better considers the ecosystems not be something that's attractive right now? Well, it, it certainly is attractive to you and to me, and I'm sure to many other people when they hear about what can be done differently. But 
you know, the corporation is the wrong vehicle for mobilizing that that desire. You know, we, we have stepped back, and I'm talking not just about governments, but I'm talking about entire societies. We've said, oh, well, you know, decisions aren't for the likes of us. Decisions are for this magical thing we call the market. We're never quite sure what the market means. It's a total abstraction, but it's that thing out there somewhere which makes decisions, which decides what systems we're going to apply, how we're going to do things. Um, we'll just leave it to them. And you, you can't run or uh, intervene in complex systems unless you do so consciously, unless you do so deliberately, without causing catastrophe. Because if we go at it blindly, as, as we are now, we just said, uh, we're going to leave it to this, this divine God we call the invisible hand of the market <clears throat> and let that invisible hand do whatever it wants to do. It, it is bound to lead to disaster um, because, be, be, because you, 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 you just can't let that desire for money to override all other human and ecological values. It will crush them all. You know, it's only when we deliberately place the value of human life and life on earth above the value of money are we likely to get better outcomes. And so, you know, we do need to intervene politically. We need democracy to become more powerful than plutocracy. Um, and that doesn't happen without deliberate and determined activism by people. You know, it's not going to happen through being better consumers. It only happens through being better citizens. Mm -hmm. Being better citizens, but also relying on governments that have the political will. And with, I guess, some of the financial ties and the lobbying and, and whatnot that, that takes place, I think some people may feel cynical about that. How much power do we actually have? So if we're going to be deliberate about it, um, you know what separates you and your view and 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 why you're passionate about the environment from leaders in government what is it why why are they not looking at this issue through the same lens as you well the greatest threat to life on earth is money in politics um money corrupts everything when it's applied to politics so um the funding of political parties the funding of individual politicians the lobbying that you mentioned um, the huge amount of dark money poured into persuasion, poured into social media, the billionaire press, Mr. Murdoch and others um, telling us how to think, um, leaning very heavily on politicians and to a very large extent becoming more powerful than, than, than governments themselves. All these interfere with our democratic rights, they interfere with our freedoms, but they also interfere with the protection of earth systems because that short-term drive for profit that valuation of money over life that is what's pushing all earth systems towards catastrophe and it's only by combining and exercising our citizenship and creating the governments that represent us and indeed taking powers from those governments and vesting them once more in the people through a much more deliberative and participatory democratic system than we have anywhere on earth at the moment. Only then, I think, can we really start to protect not just our own lives, but, but the, 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 the rest of life on earth as well. 
Um, and, and that does require a far more active citizenship than most people have, have so far been, been prepared to engage in. So in terms of, of being more active, break that down for, for us. If, if, and maybe there is, you said that there, there's no real examples of this currently around the world, but perhaps there is one country that's getting this um, the most right or doing the best job currently, maybe that, that there's a model that we could look at. But, but what are those steps as an, as an individual who is now mm-hmm. hearing this and going, okay, it seems like the, the most pressing, most important thing here is to, to get the right people into government who are going to legislate and help change the shape of the food system. Um, what are the most important things for us to be getting active about? So, so I, I would, I, I would slightly alter that. I'd say, you know, it's not just a question of getting better governments, but it's also a question of getting better governance, and that often means taking power away from governments. So, the the best examples that I'd point to are are, are generally at the city level, where um, cities have some cities have pioneered a far more democratic situation than than permitted by any state. Um, and that means um, uh, allowing citizens to have a far more hands-on approach, uh, uh, control of, of, of power at the local level. A classic example is Porto Alegre in Brazil, which um, between about um, 1989 and 2004 was governed principally by participatory budgeting. And it had an extraordinary effect on the city. What what happened was that this city was more or less controlled by the mafia. It was um, all about you know giving your brother-in-law contracts to build a bridge, whether a bridge was needed or not. Um, huge amounts of money were just squandered, stolen, frittered away. And um, uh, when a more conducive government came into power in Porto Alegre, it allowed people to build a completely new system where they were in charge of the budget. And every year about 50,000 people, um, including some of the poorest people in the city, came together to decide how the money was going to be spent. And the results were just extraordinary. You saw a a radical change in, in, in the way that money was allocated with Porto Alegre, which had been towards the bottom of the Human Development Index in Brazil came out at number one within just a few years because there was a massive improvement in healthcare, in primary education, in sanitation, clean water, public transport, um, maternal mortality stats, child mortality stats, everything massively improved. And then you had this extraordinary situation, which no political scientist would ever say was possible, of people um, demonstrating in the streets, demanding that their taxes were raised because they recognised that if they were in charge of the budget and they were spending the money together, their money would go much further than if they were trying to spend it individually. So, for instance, you could spend a couple of thousand dollars on buying a banged up old car to get you to work and you'd still get stuck in a traffic jam for an hour each way. Or you could be investing $100 of your money into a public municipal transport system, which might be a tram or a, or a monorail or, um, or, or underground train, whatever it might be, and you could get there in 20 minutes. Your, your money goes a lot further if you can 
spend it in conjunction with other people, but only if you're in charge of the budget. And there have been similar sort of genuine democratizations, passing of power back to the people in Taiwan with the V Taiwan program, in Reykjavik, in Iceland, in Madrid. None of them have yet gone far enough. You know, they're all good experiments, they're good starts. But you can roll those models out, not just citywide, but also nationwide. There's no reason at all why participatory budgeting wouldn't work at the national level. Um, and a whole lot of other participatory politics wouldn't work at the national level. Um, and when people are given genuine power, they want to exercise it. They, you know, people are far more likely to get involved in politics if they feel they can actually change the outcomes day to day. Um, and, and yet we've allowed ourselves to be lured into a system that we call democracy, which involves putting a cross on a piece of paper once every four or five years and then just leaving it to governments to decide what happens. And that whole basis, the whole system is based on the principle of presumed consent. You know, we governments presume that we've consented to everything they want to do for the next four or five years because we once put a cross on a piece of paper. Now, we don't accept the principle of presumed consent in sex. Why should we accept it in politics? Now the the cynical side of my brain has activated. It sounds like a lot to to unravel, but what I'm hearing is if we want to reimagine, uh, reconstruct the food system, we need to accept more responsibility and be less passive in the production of food. Would that be would that be a fair kind of summary? And then I guess my 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 extension to that would be it does sound george like i don't want to say mission impossible but i think if you're the average person listening to that you think where do we start well i i know um we 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 it's very easy to get lulled into a sense of despair i know that sounds like a strange construction but that that is what's happened you know we've been persuaded to despair We've been sort of almost comforted into despair. There's nothing you can do, so don't bother. You know, it's like, oh right, okay, well, I won't I won't bother with all that stuff. I'll just attend to my own thing. And and that's because it seems just too big to cope with. You know, we're faced with these massive systems, we're faced with these um global crises, and we say, Oh, you know, what can I do? I'm just useless. I'm I'm a pathetic little person, you know, look at the size of this thing that I'm up against. But that's because we don't understand how quickly things can change. Societies are also complex systems and they also have tipping points. Um, and, um, and, and the tipping point seems to come much closer in a society than it does in any other complex system because it's exacerbated by the fact that we are the supremely social mammal with the possible exception of the naked mole rat, but we won't go into it, naked mole rats. Apart from naked mole rats, human beings are the most social of all mammals. We're constantly attuned to what other people are doing, indeed what other people are thinking, and we don't want to be left behind. Rightly or wrongly, we side with the status quo, whatever it might be, and normally that's a very bad thing. But if you can change the status quo in a good way, that can become a very good thing. And so what we've seen again and again in society, is sudden, massive, radical changes, sometimes bad ones, sometimes good ones, where basically a, a social system has flipped and it's just passed a, a tipping point and gone 
from one stable state to a completely different stable state almost overnight. So a classic example, for instance, is smoking. You know, that a generation ago, it was totally acceptable to smoke everywhere, you know, and, and almost expected of you. You'd go to a restaurant and you'd light up and, and you'd be smoking in a restaurant and other people couldn't taste their food because there was just this fug of cigarette smoke. And now it's completely unacceptable. And no one could have predicted the r- remarkable speed of that change. Um, and and it was just considered impossible. And there was so much resistance to the idea that, you know, you should be allowed to smoke anywhere. Um, similarly, in, in Western Europe, the incredibly rapid sw- shift to marriage equality. Um, you know, again, just, just a few years ago, marriage equality was going to be the end of civilization as we know it. Oh, my gosh, if gay people are allowed to marry, the heavens will open and we'll all be struck down. And now the very same people, literally in some cases, I can, I can testify, people I know, saying, well, of course, I've always been in favour of marriage equality. <laughs> um, and and it, it wasn't that they were persuaded. It's it's that society changed. You know, they, they perceived that the wind had changed direction, so they tacked round to catch that wind and literally persuaded themselves that they'd always be, been in favour of it, just like after the war, right, everyone became a member of the resistance. You know, it's and 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 what we now know is is more or less where those tipping points are, and there's been a lot of um, observational and experimental evidence, and it all converges on roughly the same place, which is about twenty five percent. Once about twenty five percent of the population is committed to a new perspective, a new idea, a new way of doing things, that will happen. It becomes more or less irresistible. Um, and and you will get a sudden social shift, and that's happened many many times in history. It can also be accelerated by technological change. So so for instance, the more or less simultaneous invention of the printing press and the replacement of parchment with paper um, led um, uh, to a whole series of re- religious and political revolutions across Europe because it like lifted the lid on the latent demand for change. And so you've got a, what I call a techno-ethical shift, that these two things converging, that people wanting change and then suddenly the technology enabling it allowed things to accelerate greatly. We saw similarly with modern contraceptive technologies, which greatly accelerated women's liberation. Obviously, there's still a long way to go, but, but it gave a, a massive boost to the cause of women's liberation. Um, and And so with new technologies being developed, and there's a lot of very interesting possibilities in in the food system, Um, but also with, if we can grow the awareness of of, of what the issues are and what needs to be addressed, we can actually change things much more easily than most people assume. You know, we're we're always much closer to the tipping points than people think. And, and, And from someone like me, who's fascinated by complex systems and very aware of tipping points, it can be so frustrating because people are in total despair thinking, I can't do anything, when we might be that far from a tipping point, we might be that close to being able to change a system. But because we can't see that, and because you can never see a tipping point until you crossed it, people assume there's nothing can be done and give up and go home. So I want to get to these new ideas that you put forward that that you want people to embrace, and also the the new pieces of technology that may help us reach um, some of those tipping points. But just before we kind of get there, we spoke about soil, 
but I think we should just summarize or better clarify the the overall problems with the current food system. In the book, you make a specific point to discuss animal agriculture, for example, and I, I think I think you may. Uh, have said in the book or I've heard you in in other interviews suggest that this could be the worst part of our food system which is you know something that I outlined in my book a a few years ago where I came to very similar sort of conclusions to you Um, I have a bunch of 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 questions here about animal agriculture but what is the reason that animal agriculture is particularly problematic so the if we start with where we are and then look at where we might be going, we see what is arguably the biggest impact of all on Earth systems. So at the moment, um, if we look at mammals by weight on Earth, um, only 4% of the mammals on Earth are wild. 36% is us as human beings and 60% is is livestock with birds only 29 percent of birds by weight are wild 71 percent of our poultry almost all of them chickens it's it's an incredible capture of earth systems by our livestock and a lot of people talk about the population crisis and what they mean when they talk about the population crisis is the human population but actually human population is one of the very few environmental indicators which which is plateauing um, it's leveling out very rapidly. It's um, the growth rate has dropped from two percent in the 1960s to under one percent now, um, and it'll probably hit the plateau mid-century and then start declining. Unlike almost every other indicator, which is rocketing. Um, but livestock population is rising by 2.4 percent a year. This is massive growth. Um, and what that means, to put it in crude terms, by 2050, is that there'll be an extra 100 million tons of human being on Earth, but an extra 400 million tons of livestock. And it's livestock which are eating us out of house and home. It's that demand for, for feed and primarily for land um, driven by livestock farming that is um, the biggest driver of, of environmental destruction. Um, so already um, um, roughly 50% of the cropland on Earth is used for feeding animals rather than going directly to human beings. Um, but then much bigger than the amount of cropland we're using is the amount of pasture land. And there's been this catastrophic and completely ill-informed drive, not just by the livestock industry, but also by celebrity chefs, by food writers, by a whole lot of people, including even some environmentalists who just haven't looked at the science at all, saying we should be switching to eating pasture-fed meat. Now, pasture-fed meat is the worst possible farm product you can eat. It's the most damaging of all farm products because of the vast amount of land that it requires. So if you know, land use is this issue that we should all be talking about. We should all be fully aware of it. And yet almost no one is. You know, if we talk about land use at all, it's urban sprawl. And urban sprawl is, is definitely a real blight. You know, you, you can see it if you go to Adelaide. Um, you know, there's many parts of the world where cities are just aren't compact enough. And as a result, they do enormous harm both to urban life and to the countryside. But all the world's 
infrastructure, all the buildings on Earth, our homes, our businesses, our roads, our airports, all the rest of it occupy 1% of the terrestrial surface of the planet. Farming occupies 38% of the planet. 12% of that is crops, but 26%, the whole planet, is livestock farming on pasture. And it's pasture which is driving the collapse of Earth systems faster than anything else. Um, and that's because of its enormous land demand. Because every hectare you occupy, um, you, you use for an extractive industry, is a hectare that can't be used for to support wild ecosystems, such as rainforests, or wetlands, or savannas, or natural grasslands, all of which are far richer, both in, in wildlife species and in carbon, than the pasture with which they've been replaced. And there's this very powerful myth being put about that pastures are good for wildlife, that they um, that, that pasturing cattle restores ecosystems and sequesters carbon. It's simply untrue. It's just a massive, humongous lie on, on the same sort of scale as the fossil fuel industry's lies about more carbon dioxide being good for the planet because it's plant food. It's that scale of lie. And yet huge numbers of people and movies such as Kiss the Ground have bought into this and, and repeated this lie. Um, and so it becomes very hard to, to confront people with what's really going on, which is that you know, we've taken far more land than any other human use to, to put cattle and sheep onto pasture um, and, and faster than anything else that's eating the planet. And you know, all the rest of the land is either forest or protected area, and there's not nearly enough of either of those, or desert, or ice cap, or mountain, and farming, particularly um, rangeland farming, ranching, has taken everything there is, mm. more or less. Let's double click on that because I, I read the bit in your book about Alan Savory. I think this is super fascinating, and you're right. This has become a kind of pop popular rhetoric out there. And some a line that I hear is, "It's not the cow, it's the how." And there was a yeah. book, oh, "Sacred but, Cow," that yeah. came out, and and I would get this stuff sent to me, you know, all the time from people. So my question to you is, if the science is clear, if these claims about holistic grazing being, you know, sequestering all this carbon, being carbon negative, and um, helping cool the planet, are not grounded in really good science. Are people just accepting this story because it's kind of romantic at face value or what? what's the motive behind the media sort of getting behind holistic grazing and documentaries like Kiss the Ground? Well, we, we live in an age of bullshit. You know, and people would much rather hear a comforting lie than a discomforting truth. Um, and and this is a very comforting lie, um, not not just because it it's, it helps the meat industry to hide the brutal realities of what it's doing to the planet, but also because it it chimes with thousands of years of comforting lies about, about herding animals. Um, and these go back in the secular tradition to Theocritus in the third century BC, writing about the shepherds in his native Sicily while he was looking back nostalgically to Sicily from Alexandria where he was living and talking about these shepherds just sitting under the trees and chatting and playing music and having sex with each other, but not actually doing any work. And they were the sort of, um, uh, that's where 
um, purity and innocence were lodged. Whereas in the busy cauldron of the city where he was living, it was all evil and corruption. And there was a very similar story told by the Old Testament, which was largely written by the descendants of herders. Um, you know, right, it's right there from the beginning that the herders are the good guys, the tillers of the land are the bad guys. Cain, the tiller of the land, kills Abel, the beloved of God, the herder of beasts. Um, they look back with nostalgia to when Abraham's flocks darkened the land. Um, Woe to the bloody city, it is all lies and corruption, the prey departeth not. Um, and then these two traditions really fuse in the New Testament, where Jesus becomes both the Good Shepherd and Agnes Dei, the Lamb of God. And he tells his, his, his disciples to feed my sheep. Um, and they became the first pastors, which is the Latin name for shepherd but has also come to mean priest. And it's still the case in the Western church that the, the, the bishop's crozier is, is in the shape of a, a sheep hook. Um, and, um, and, and so we have this great sort of elision of, of, of virtue with, with, with the herding of animals. And then this, this um, comes back big time in the European Renaissance, people like Dante and Petrarch and Boccaccio um, and and then in England, big time with um, Marlowe and Shakespeare and Spencer and Herbert and others, um, and and then in the Wild West myths in in the US, a very similar story with these cowboys, the pure people out there under the stars, singing their songs, telling their tales, driving their animals, fighting those dreadful natives, um, and um, and. You know, this very powerful myth heavily suffused with racism um, uh, and creating this sort of Arcadian notion of this endless frontier stretching towards the Pacific, um, which was you know, a terra nullius, which we could fill with our virtuous beasts. And, and these stories are deeply implanted in our souls. They, they have the status of what Jeremy Lent calls root metaphors, um, ideas so deeply implanted that we don't even recognize them as ideas. We just accept them as facts. Um, and, and yet that, you know, and, and so it's very easy then to, to rebuild that story and tell it in a slightly different way and say, you know, these are the virtuous people. This is innocence and purity. It's herding, herding the cattle or the sheep. Um, and it's a city which is evil and corrupt. And that's basically the story being told by Alan Savory in Kiss the Ground just with a whole new layer of bullshit piled on it. Look at these photos. How, you know, you bring the cattle in and you restore this land. Yeah, let's look at those photos. You, the only ones which have been fully attested where they actually are show the exact opposite of what happens when you remove cattle from the land. And, and the pictures of restoration he was showing were the result of taking cattle away. And there's so much is just... Bullshit upon bullshit and upon bullshit. And I'm not saying they're lying. I think they actually believe this. You know, it's worse. It's worse than lying in a way. They actually believe what they're saying. It's motivated reasoning. You know, it's people who, who herd cattle want to believe that they're the good guys. And so they come up with a whole litany of reasons as to why they're the good guys. And if those reasons don't exist, they subconsciously invent them. Where does incentives come into this? Because something else I, I often see pop up is, well, you know, who are you to to say that I should use less land, you know, um, 
this land can't be used for anything else other than grazing cows. And I appreciate what you're saying in your message is we need to grow more calories from less land and we need to rewild some of the current uh, farm that we've created. Uh, we've turned earth into a farm of sorts. Um, but how do we how do we work our way through this? Is it a case of saying to these farmers, okay, we understand that currently you're making money from grazing. There is a better option with regards to planetary health here in, in terms of rewilding and they would be paid for that? Yeah, so... so- I mean, you, you exactly put your finger on it. This story we hear again and again, oh, there's nothing else you could do with this land. And what we mean by do is extract something from it. But, you know, it's time we stop thinking only about what we can extract from an ecosystem. And it's time we started to see ecosystems as valuable in their own right. And in fact, the less we extract, the more valuable they are, because the more they defend us against catastrophe. And in fact, it's now reached the point where it's very hard to see how we're going to get through this century, let alone those that follow, unless there is a mass ecological restoration, unless we restore ecosystems on a huge scale, in other words, rewild ecosystems. Because I think that's our only chance now of stopping the sixth great extinction and of drawing down much of the carbon dioxide that's already been released into the atmosphere. So we, we now know that even if we were to decarbonize our economies tomorrow, and we should be decarbonizing them as quickly as we possibly can. We've left it so late that we can't avoid 1.5 or even two degrees of global heating. So alongside that decarbonization, we must also be drawing down carbon dioxide we've already released from the atmosphere. And the best, quickest, most effective and most benign way of doing that is, is rewilding ecosystems, because as the trees come back, as the wetlands come back, they draw down large amounts of carbon dioxide and turn it into solid carbon, into wood, into peat, into mud, um, which, which holds it there and stops it from leaking back into the, in, into the atmosphere. Um, and, and so this really is a matter of raw survival now. You know, and there's no money you can put on any food system which beats the money or beats the, the value rather of, of human survival and the survival of the rest of, of life on Earth. And in fact, what makes it all the more poignant is that you realise that a huge proportion of these food systems, particularly cattle and sheep ranching, wouldn't be there at all if we weren't paying for them through public subsidies. They are solely sustained through public subsidies in many, many cases uh, because they're just not economically viable. So it's not even a question of profits to be made. It's a question of stopping governments pouring our tax money into the, the, the destruction of life on Earth. It's so blatant. It's so outrageous. It's so amazing that we've not only tolerated this for so long, but we don't even talk about it. You know, there are half a trillion dollars a year are being spent on farm subsidies around the world, and almost all of them are being put into destructive industry, which would not be happening if it were not for those subsidies, primarily into livestock farming. And that's a very simple intervention point where we just say, OK, let's stop subsidising livestock farming. A load of it would just go away tomorrow. And then we could restore the land that it occupies, producing very little food on huge amounts of land, which it's currently doing, we could turn that into something very, very valuable indeed. 
which is rich functional ecosystems, drawing down carbon and preventing the collapse of Earth systems. Mm. Um, what's not to like about that? You know, why are we pouring money not just into the fossil fuel industry, but also into the livestock industry, the two most destructive industries on Earth? I think that some of that is comes back to what you spoke about earlier about having more responsibility within the community with the, with the people because if governments are, are constantly just worried about getting in and, and staying in in a four-year period, they're not as incentivized to think about the long term so much. And as I understand it, um, you know, a lot of these subsidies that are in place are, are off the back of lobbying and receiving donations or dark money, as you mentioned earlier. Is, is that the case? Is that why these subsidies exist despite the environmental damage that these industries are causing? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it's capture. It, 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 we, we've seen the capture of governments, the capture of political systems by a small number of industries. And our complacency is that's what gets to me more than anything else. <laughs> it's just I don't understand where where are people? You know what? Why why have we just allowed this to happen? Why have we allowed our political systems, which are supposed to belong to us, our Earth systems, which belong to everyone and no one? Why have we allowed those to be captured by a tiny number of unrepresentative people in order to channel vast amounts of money into the hands of billionaires? Why have we allowed that to happen? You know, why aren't we revolting against this? And, and, and you know, especially when we know from these great examples of participatory democracy, for instance, how we could do things so much better. Why do we allow these people to walk all over us? You know, and that is one of the great mysteries about humankind is our passivity, our compliance with systems that are destroying us. And indeed, our justification of those systems, you know, system justification is something I see every day, particularly on social media. So, oh, well, there must be a good reason for it. Oh, no, that you know, they're, they're doing things for our benefit. The hell they are. It's absolutely not the case. You know, it's just, it's just greed and grabbing and, and, and seizure of, of the political and economic and ecological space that belongs to all of us. Yeah, ignorance trust i mean there's something beautiful as well i guess in a, in a weird twisted way about just thinking that people will do the right thing by you that's what you that's what you would hope right you would just hope that would be an a, amazing world if the governments were always just representing the people yeah um and I, I mean we we love that idea but it's it's the folk tale of democracy um, it's, uh, there's this wonderful book by um, Christopher Action and Larry Bartles um, called Democracy for Realists, saying here is the folk story we, talk, talk, we tell about democracy and here is the reality of it. You know, the political scientists have just studied these systems and one of their conclusions was that the great majority of people have no um, useful information about politics whatsoever. Just they've got no knowledge at all of politics. And so we say, oh, I like that guy's face. He looks like he looks like my sort of guy. Right, I'll vote for him. You know, that's literally the level that it's on. We've got to get ourselves informed. We, you know, if you don't put the effort in, you, you're not going to get anything out. You know, we we have to apply ourselves to these systems and think about them and engage with them. Otherwise, we will get exploited. 
George, I've got so much more I want to talk to you about, but I appreciate that you have to get going. Um, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe we can just finish with a short summary of, if not producing animal protein through this current system that we've just walked through, what's the alternative? I know that you you are very optimistic about precision fermentation and using microbes to create protein. Sure. So, uh, and, and as you could probably tell from the beginning of the interview, I've become quite obsessed by microbes. They are extraordinary. I mean, they've got these incredible capacities, which we're only just beginning to understand. And for 12,000 years or so, we've been concentrating on breeding multicellular organisms, animals and plants, and we've pretty well pushed them to the limit and beyond. You know, if you think of how pigs and chickens are now being treated beyond the limit of what they can take, it's just totally horrible. Um, and and yet we've scarcely explored the potential of microorganisms at all. Um, and you know, and you can grow them with massively smaller environmental impacts, with none of the animal suffering that's being caused by the current system, and anywhere on Earth. So that you know, countries which are now totally dependent on importing food from the other side of the world because they don't have enough fertile land or water of their own, they could produce their own food if we were growing microbes. And and microbes have this tremendous capacity to feed people. We can produce exactly the, the protein profiles that we want healthily, much more cheaply. Um, and we're only just beginning to get to grips with the potential of what could be a shift as important as the agricultural revolution. And, and there is hope here. And I, I think there's a real potential for a techno-ethical shift of the kind that we were talking about before with the printing press and modern contraceptive technologies. How do you see the adoption of, of, of that from the kind of mainstream market? I can imagine some, some pushback, and I think I've even read comments on, on the socials where people say, that's not natural, that's Franken-food, that's going to come out of a, yeah, a factory. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we, you know, we, we're perfectly complacent about the idea of killing 76 billion animals a year to feed ourselves, 76 billion. You know, and these huge monstrous factories in which thousands of pigs or tens of thousands of chickens are kept or these massive milking parlours in which hundreds and hundreds of dairy cows are lined up. And oh yeah, that's just natural, that's fine. That's completely natural. And then you see a brewery in which microbes are being, are being bred and you say, oh, that's horrible, that's, hor that's totally unnatural. So, so what's the difference? The difference is all, all positive. Everything about the second situation is better than the first situation. And there's no, it's no more unnatural than what we're doing to the pigs and chickens or, for that matter, in the way that we grow wheat or, or corn. It's, it, you know, naturalness isn't an issue here. It doesn't come into it because it's all human-made situations but one has far lower impacts than the other and so we should be looking at the one with the lower impacts mm. is it is that the key you think to the this piece of freeing up land to rewild mm. a lot of land it, it it's a major part of it i mean we still obviously need to produce arable crops um, grain we need to produce fruit and vegetables in fact we ought to be eating far more fruit and veg than we are and so we need revolutions in the way those are produced as well. And, and there's some very interesting possibilities that I explore in the book. But, um, but the biggest shift of all comes from getting out of livestock, 
there, there are two things we need to do to prevent the collapse of Earth systems. One is to leave fossil fuels in the ground. The other is to stop farming animals. And, and stopping farming animals is probably an even more important task than leaving fossil fuels in the ground because of the way that livestock farming hits every single Earth system. And so, um, and, and so if, if we can use the new technologies to substitute for animal products and get out of animal products very quickly, that could be the best hope there is for life on Earth. I think that's a good place to land the plane here, George. <laughs> this has been a, a tremendous honour to, to have this time with you. I'd, I'd love to do a round two at some stage and, and talk about stock-free organic farming and perennials yeah. versus annuals and all the, the other incredible things that you cover in the book. And as I said at the outset, this is a powerful book. I, I, I really do want every single listener to go out and, and get a copy. You won't be disappointed. Uh, George, if... If folks want to stay in touch with you, of course, they can read your work um, with The Guardian, but where else can we, we send them online? Um, so, yeah, there's quite a few videos um, I've put out. Um, I think somebody put a YouTube channel together for me, but I'm not sure everything's on that. Double Down News, I do a lot with them. Um, I'm quite active on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, hope to see you on one of those. Okay, cool. Well, we can put all of that into the, the show notes. Thanks again. I appreciate your time and I really hope that we can continue this conversation in the near future. Fantastic, Simon. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a comment on the YouTube videos or a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take notes of these comments when planning for future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.